Hi, and welcome to Journeys to Belonging podcast with host Dr. Eileen Winokur, featuring awesome educators and leaders who share their journeys, advice, and personal stories about feeling a sense of belonging. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Journeys to Belonging. On my podcast today, I have somebody that I've known online anyway for a couple of years, but we did have the happy stance, not happenstance, but happy stance to meet each other in Philadelphia at ISTE several years ago uh, when he was getting together with my uh, son-in-law. And uh, I'm just really excited to introduce Tan Nguyen to my episode today. Thank you so much. You're doing so much in the EL community. So I can't wait to get started chatting about all of that. How are you? Oh, Eileen, thank you for having me. It's an honor. And so I, you're right. It was a happy stance. I still remember that day when we met at Istin. We had a dinner outside just after learning so many great things. And that is an amazing community. Uh, at ISTE. And so I'm, ha- I'm happy I could be there before the pandemic. Yes. Yeah, that was probably one of the last, I think it was the last conference I attended year, before. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it is a wonderful way to network and meet. So I didn't really say much about you and your what you're doing. So uh, let my listeners know what, what you're up to. Oh, yeah. Currently, I am a social studies teacher. I teach grade six, eight, and 10 at an international school in Bangkok. Uh, it's a small little IB school. Uh, and this is my first year teaching social studies. It is a steep, steep curve. Let me tell you, that was hard. That first unit was really hard because I transitioned from uh, being a teacher of language learners for the past about 10 years, just uh, co-teaching with teachers, co-planning, being in classes with kids. and enjoying working with 20 kids on my caseload. And, uh, and, I, and I was like, okay, I thought this was hard, like to having 20 kids. Yeah. But then when I have 100 kids now and I am wow. consistently uh, giving them feedback on uh, their reports and their writing and, and, I mean, planning instruction for language learners is, uh, and planning content uh, is instruction regardless. But when you have 100 kids that you're um, responding to, responsible for, Natalia, it hurts in a different way, but I am, uh, I am learn. I, I said yes to this position because I, when you say yes to something, you say no to other things, right? And I wanted to say yes to, uh, to learn what it's like to be a content teacher, to say yes to can I apply the strategies that I've been advocating for teachers, uh, with language learners on my own as a content teacher, and so uh, the yes has come true and. Uh, I am loving the experience, though I still miss working with language learners um, as a full-time uh, language specialist. Yeah, that's so awesome. So you're you're getting sort of that per- different perspective. Yeah, uh, yeah we'll, we'll definitely talk about that uh, during the show today. Yeah. So the first question I usually ask my guests is, if I say the word belonging or feeling a sense of belonging to you, what comes to mind? Uh, instantly, I thought of Dr. Rudine Simbisop's uh, quote, she said, there are mirrors, sliding doors, and windows, right? Uh, she was referring to books, and she said how like books can be windows into other people's worlds. Um, 
sliding glass doors where we can walk through those worlds and mirrors will help us reflect to see us uh, and our experience better. Right. And, I, and I thought about, okay, as an Asian American growing up in America, like sub suburban America outside of Philadelphia, mm -hmm. I really never felt uh, like I belonged in, in yeah. that society until um, my fifth grade teacher read a book about World War II and how a little girl survived um, the bombing uh, in Japan, uh, the, atomic, uh, the atomic bomb. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the first time where I like saw myself reflected in the curriculum because I, I always saw like, we're gonna learn about Columbus. We're gonna learn about uh, the founding fathers. We're gonna learn about this and that. I never saw like me in the curriculum. So yeah. a sense of belonging means students that we teach their lives, their cultures, their language, and their experiences are reflected in the text that we share, mm -hmm. in the videos that we play, in the curriculum that uh, we center our instruction on. And so that's what it means to be seen. Yeah, that's, that's so awesome. Yeah, and that's so true. And I know there's a lot of discussion about that now because there's so much attention being paid to it. Yeah. And we really need to make sure that it ends up happening in the classrooms, that children see themselves in the books, in the videos, in the curriculum, and can really identify. So I'm so glad that, that that's the way you, you started this conversation. Um, you are a, you know, a prolific podcaster yourself and a blogger. And I know those two things you use in order to make sure that uh, you're, you are able to share your learning about teaching ELs with others. So talk a little bit about how you got started and what interested you in teaching English language learners and what motivated you to, to begin sharing that with others. Right. I think um, when I first started working with language learners, I was not the teacher that I am now. I always... Uh, approach them with a language deficit approach or a deficit approach. I still remember in, um, I was, it was my first year teaching abroad in China. And it was my first year uh, in my master's program, in my language specialist program. And I remember e emailing my professor. I said, I just read this article about um, having students use their home language in class. That's absurd. Why would we do that? That doesn't make any sense. And I gave them, a, I gave her an example. I wish I had that that email. I'm gonna go search for it. But yeah, the email was the email said, if we want to ride a bicycle, how are we going to be proficient and competent on riding the bicycle if we don't get on the bicycle and pedal? And I don't remember what she said because I was like, Ugh, I don't know what research says, but I know that kids need to use their language in order to be able to develop English. And that was the kind of person that I was. I would, I would, I would still remember my, my frustration with my Chinese students, all Chinese students uh, at that international school. I, uh, I, I had a point system where kids who spoke, they started with a certain amount of points. And every time they spoke Chinese, I took away points. 
Oh, wow. And I was like, looking back, I'm ashamed to, to share that because I didn't realize that, oh, they, they, they didn't understand this text and I would be angry, upset and belittling to them. And I was, and I would run down to the, uh, head of school and I would say, why are you admitting these kids in ninth grade when they can't read? Oh, this is, gosh. it's not fair for them. It's not fair for the teachers. This is not an appropriate practice. And now I look back and I'm like, oh, wait, I could have used students' home language yeah. to have them access the text, to have them say, oh, okay, I don't know what photosynthesis means in English, but I know what photosynthesis means in Chinese. I can just transfer that. Absolutely. And so yeah. that's how I started off by like really fighting um, the, the research and really fighting um, the asset approach. I, I know I was, and then when I started to teach in Laos at, at Vincennes International School, I, I we the motto was co-planning, co-teaching. And I was like, why are we having kids who are who are beginners? I would say, I would say no, no language. They have no language. I'm like, mm -hmm. and I, even that was revealing of my deficit model. Of course they have language. They have their home language. But I said, just because they didn't speak English fluently, I labeled them as no language. And then, and then so I would say, I would, we would go to these classes, these science classes, and I'm like, why are you making them learn about migration in social studies, for example, when mm -hmm. they can't even read the word bathroom, when they can't even say, can I go to the bathroom? And I would fight the system, and the, and the, and the school had just moved away from that um, warehousing model where we pull kids out and they have their all the whole day in their like school within a school and right i was trying to move have the school go back to that i was saying this is the model we need to do this this is what we did in america we had like kids isolated from mainstream until they were ready the the my school was like no that's not the model where we're using you co-plan you co-teach and then i started to read more and i started to be in content teachers' classrooms, and I would say, okay, fine, I'll be here and I'll wait for them to fail. And then slowly oh, yeah. I would see, right, I didn't know. Yeah. And then it's the teachers, really the content teachers that showed me the most. They would say, we're not gonna change this assessment for this kid. Your job is to make the kid, help the kid be able to do the assessment. I'm not changing the assessment. We're gonna keep the rigor high. We're gonna keep the mm -hmm. expectations high. We're gonna keep them the same. I don't know how to do this. You're in this position. Your job is to help make this kid successful. And so I said, oh, okay, you. Uh, oh, that's intimidating. Yes. I was like, oh, you don't want me to pull them out? Are you sure I can pull them out for you? No. They stay in class. They learn the same thing the same time. And then I figured out ways to do it. And then slowly and I was like, oh. At the time, I called them English learners. I was like, oh, English learners can do exactly what other students are expected to do if we just scaffold the instruction more. Right. And then throughout the years, I started to like uh, develop into a deeper understanding, a belief that, okay, kids have assets. If we work on those assets, they come ready to learn. We just have to meet their eagerness. Right. And then I started to, then I started to switch. And then I would, I would always, I, before the switch, I would say kids can't. And then after the switch, I can say, we can, they can, what, what can we do? Right? Nice. And from that, WIDA, that, that, that comes from WIDA. And from that switch, I 
started to notice teachers who were like me had a deficit mindset, and I was advocating against that. It's like the the, the like the, the converted trying to convert others. Yeah. <laughs> and then, but you were coming from a place of of you know I've been there, so yes, yes, I like, share I share your concerns. Yes, I yeah. So I know what you're going through because I used to believe that too. And so I would work with teachers and I realized, oh, okay, uh, some of them are not getting it. Or I would only work with social studies and science teacher, but I realized my, my, the language learners were struggling in all content classes, in math, in drama, in sure. art, in PE, right? And I would say- Yeah, because they lack the vocabulary, right? Right, they lack yeah. the vocabulary, that vocabulary, yeah. uh, that comprehensible input. So I decided to say, I decided, okay, I'm gonna create a blog because if you're not going to listen to me, someone in the world is going to listen to me. If it's just one reader, that's fine. But I just need to share this out. Yeah. And each blog, I would have like a infographic. Um, I would call them bathroom briefs. And this is like, instead of blog written form, I would have an infographic where Mm -hmm. uh, people who are too busy to read an entire article can just look at the infographic and get the information. I would post them in the bath, print them out and post them in the bathroom. I would, I would go to school on Saturdays early when no one was there and run to the men's bathroom and run to <laughs> the women's bathroom and paste them up um, and so that teachers would have them on Monday. And, and then I would put them in front of the stalls, the urinals for men and then the stalls for women. And they would, they would be there. And every week I recycled them through. I would, each week I would share a different strategy or different concept and I had about two years worth of um, infographics. And I guess that's how I started by just sharing like what we believe, yeah. we, sharing the research, making it visual and giving it to teachers. And at times some teachers were like, can you please just move it to the right or left? Because if you're putting it right in front of my eyes, I just need a break. So I did. I, I don't want, yeah, I don't want to see work stuff. Yeah, it's just like, please, <laughs> that's so funny. Please. But other teachers were like, okay, hey, I, I, I use that strategy that you shared, and it worked. Yeah. And um, so that that's how it, I started. And uh, Yeah, amazing. And I started the podcast because I felt like I'm observing myself as a, as a listener podcast because I would listen to podcasts again and again and again from, mm -hmm. um, from Tim Ferriss from all these different um, meditation podcasts and uh, like social entre uh, entrepreneur podcasts. Right. Uh, Oprah, the Oprah podcast, and um, there was, I started to listen to educational podcasts, and Jennifer, Jennifer Gonzalez from the Code of Pedagogy, she had, um, I, I listened from the beginning to end, and there was one episode that said, how to start a podcast, and I did not download that podcast, I was like, I am not going to do another thing, project. exactly, <laughs> I am so busy, I'm not going to yeah. do another task, because yeah. I know that if I listen to that podcast, I'm going to start a podcast and it's going to be gone. Like my time is going to be gone. And yet one day at the gym, I pushed play. I was like, all right, fine. Let's, let's just, let's just hear this. Let's see. What I, I can't push it away anymore. I can't push it away, right? <laughs> because I was, my life was changed by the podcast that I would listen to the meditation yeah. podcast, like the, like the social enterprise podcast, the, mm. all these podcasts that I would listen to has developed me as a person. Right. And so I said, okay, let me just try. Let me just listen. I listened and that night I was like, okay, I know the name. Okay, I know how I'm gonna structure it. That I, this is gonna be the intro, this is gonna be the outro. And I was like, oh no, 
I'm going to start a podcast. You're ready. Yeah. I was ready. And then yeah. um, I've been really grateful to have like amazing educators and scholars and researchers and teacher, teacher practitioners who are sharing from their hearts. And so um, I feel like every time I do a podcast, I'm learning just to reinforce what I already believe and also to add to what I believe, um, add new skill sets. Um, but it has also been now um, a thing where people are, uh, on Twitter are saying like, hey, I just listened to your podcast with Katie and it really helped out. And I was like, oh, it feels man, good, it right? It feels good because yeah. you're like in your living room working and, and or like I'm at the I'm at a coffee shop listening to a headphone. I'm like, what could I be doing? I could be like exercising, but I'm listening to a podcast mm -hmm. and editing it and putting it out there. And my, my prayer has always been may this serve kids I would never beat. And uh, people in the Twitter uh, world, uh, Twitter sphere have said, yeah, this, thank mm -hmm. you for this. I listened to it and I'm sharing it with my district. And so, yeah, um, I'm appreciative of that. Yeah, what's so nice is that the episodes you have and the guests that you have on are all sharing different types of strategies and ideas and so bringing that all together is is really really amazing because uh, you know everybody benefits from that and i know when i'm having my podcast i'm often learning so much from from everybody else that yeah. that i have on so that's that's really awesome yeah. um tom you mentioned WIDA. For yes. those who don't know what WIDA is, can you briefly mention it? And I'll also make sure it's in the, the uh, link to the WIDA website is in the uh, show notes. Yeah. So WIDA is um, an, an instructional center uh, mm -hmm. that is, the, is a research arm of the research uh, compartment of Wisconsin University in Madison. Mm -hmm. And they, their center is, uh, all, all the focus on is researching language acquisition and creating systems for teachers, schools, and districts on how to work with language learners. They call, uh, call they've moved from English learners to multilinguals um, to mm -hmm. be more inclusive. And I support that idea. And what they do is they provide something called a, they call it a can-do philosophy. And that really has changed my approach, where, right. we, where we approach kids with a can-do and we approach our teachers with a can-do and we approach students' families with a can-do uh, approach. And from that mindset, barriers are removed because our mindset is open to what, what is possible instead of focused and, and, and limited by what we can't do or what kids students can't do. So the, the part of the like, can-do philosophy comes to with can-do standards, uh, WIDA standards. And they, it's basically like the, the language standards for English um, that you would have in standards from like uh, the Common Core or um, ISTE standards or um, Next Generation of Science standards. These are just standards for language development. And they've really broken it down from pre-K all the way to uh, grade 12. And they they have all these resources out there for teachers. Um, and they're amazing. They're, they're probably considered like the gold standard of uh, language acquisition and, and what teachers look for as saying like, okay, what's the resource out there? What's the research behind it? And what's the system? They also have assessments to help um, diagnose, not diagnose, but help uh, receive students at the beginning to see where right. their language level is, English, le English level proficiency and 
to help them uh, progress. Um, they're becoming uh, more inclusive as well. They're, uh, they've really helped shift that, that uh, to, to help shift away from that deficit model for yeah. many years into an asset-based model, but now they're even looking more into like saying, are we really trying to transition students out of English? Or are we try are we trying to add to their linguistic repertoire? Um, so yeah, that's I, a that's a big thing right now. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes. yeah. And WIDA is great. Uh, I mean, the School of Education at the University of Wisconsin Madison is amazing as it is because there's so many things that they're doing. But WIDA for specifically and the assessments, which are a benchmark, which is wonderful because many schools don't have. Uh, any any way of really assessing where their students are when they come in. And so the, the WIDA assessments are really good. And you're right, that whole change of thinking from this deficit and also the change from this uh, bilingual or as a second language or an add-on to let's look at their language proficiency all the way around. Right. I know for students here in Kuwait, it is a second language English is, or as an additional language, English is very different for Arabic speakers because it's just so different in so many different ways. But they really need to be able to use their first language uh, in order to understand the second language. And what we know about the brain, I'm sure you've, you've read, uh, you know, different things about how the brain learns yes. in terms of language is you really need that initial first language in order to be able to put the, the scaffolding and the other languages and connect them because eventually, you know, I, I, I talk to people and they say, wow, you're so fluent in Arabic, Eileen. And I said, yeah, I can even dream in Arabic. Wow. But Spanish was the second language that I learned in school, but I still translate Spanish. So it's like the, the different sides of the brain that are working. It's, it's really fascinating. So language acquisition is definitely something that we need to, and your journey to understanding from starting to, to now is, is really amazing. The fact that you're sharing is awesome. Can I just, I'm like, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. And the fact that I'm like an immigrant child who like, I'm like the poster child of a kid who came to America, didn't know any English, and I, and I developed my, my English skills. And then now I'm advocating for like, I used to advocate for a different approach where it was like pull kids out, isolate them, have them only speak English. And I was like, wow, I can't believe that I advocated that. Even though I am an immigrant who like, we, we pride ourselves in my, my family for being able to keep our home language. And yet I am now going into schools and giving, taking kids points away for them using Chinese. So that I like, I I guess it, there was like this internalized racism that I didn't realize. And I was like, wow, I just took a model that I I grew up in. Now I'm, I thought that we teach the way we were taught. I was going to ask you. Yes, so it was, it, it was an immersion situation right. with a pullout program. Is that how you learned initially? Yeah, right. And I was, we were. I was pulled out for a few periods of the a day, mm -hmm. but it was always like, don't speak. Vietnamese here. You only speak um, English, and if we use Vietnamese, it's only the beginning, so you can transition into English. Yeah. And I was like, that's how I learned. That's how I became an English a proficient English speaker. So maybe that's the approach we should use at at the schools with everybody. With yes. everybody. And I was like, yeah. Well, actually, that's a really racist, deficit approach to instruction. 
we were trying to erase students' home language and their cultures. And I think Dr. Jim Cummings said, uh, the Canadian uh, scholar said, when we, when we do not welcome students' home language in schools, we don't welcome the student. Right? Absolutely, right. yes. Yeah, and if you're talking about identity and belonging, that is a big problem. But we don't realize that. And I know when I was principal uh, of elementary school here in Kuwait, it was often the uh, excuse or reason was used is that if they use their native or mother tongue, I won't understand them because I don't know Arabic. That, that was what the teachers would say. And so I don't know if they're actually on task or not. <laughs> and I used to tell them that you will definitely know if they're yes. on task or not yes, can, by right? their body language, by what they're doing. And I used to allow them to just give instructions to each other, yes. uh, but you know, not extended conversations in the language because that's all they really needed. Right. And you could see the aha moment, the, the right. light that would go on because right. they connected it, like you said, to their, to their first language or to, you know, to the language that they were strongest in. So, yeah, and I love the fact that the labels have changed from one language learner to multilingual. Um, it also gives the attitude that we should be encouraging multilingual, not just one language. And I, I certainly understood the point of view of the teachers that they wouldn't understand it, so it felt uncomfortable. But you're right, that is a very racist sort of um, phobic way of looking at things yeah we're trying to decolonize education and that's how we do it i mean i guess we're just trying to say like your language your your language is tied to culture you are welcome here your culture is welcome here because we are welcoming your language here yeah Todd, this was wonderful if people want to find you right afterwards and of course i'll i'll uh, include it in the show notes where are the best places to find you uh, well, I'm active on Twitter, so it's uh, uh, Tan, T-A-N-K, and my last name, Wynn, H-U-Y-N-H. That was fast. I'll say it again. Sorry. T-A-N-K, <laughs> H-U-Y-N-H, so Tan K. Wynn. Um, and my current, the current name of my blog is Empowering L's, E-L's, uh, mm-hmm. E-L-L's, English Language Learners, but I'm going to be transitioning it to uh, Tan K. Wynn as well because I'm, I'm moving away from the deficit model. And I, and I realized that when during the tragic killing of the murder of George Floyd, I was like, oh, wait, what? So I'm transitioning over my all my platforms to just my name. Um, and there's yeah, a blog. And so. That'll be easier to find you also. Yeah. Yeah. When do you think the transition will be ready? <laughs> In the summer when I don't grade 120 <laughs> essays. Every and year. answer journals. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's worth it though, let me tell you. Oh my gosh, yeah. Tan, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your, your taking the time and, and being on my podcast today. Oh, it's an honor to always share with a colleague. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you're inspired by what you heard, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about belonging, check my website, Journeys to Belonging, that's Journeys number two belonging, dot webstarts.com. See you next week.